This is the Doctor Mama podcast with your host, Doctor Alice Kaufman. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Doctor Mama podcast. Hello, friends. This is episode twenty-four for May twenty-seventh, twenty twenty-one. And very excitingly, and kind of sadly at the same time, it's the season finale of season one. It is. This will be our very last episode of season one, and we will be gone for a bit, mostly because I'm going on to a stretch of inpatient. And eventually, hopefully, we will return for another season to continue this adventure. But so we, we thought we'd have a bit of fun with this with this week's episode, the season finale, and quite a few people over the 24 weeks, um, have said, well, we don't know much about your, you, and maybe you should do a reverse episode. So, what have we done? So, we went back to our most frequent guest on this podcast, the only guest who did two episodes and actually three interviews over the course of those two episodes, the amazing Rebecca, and we asked her if she would be willing to do a flipped format with us and interview us and ask our story of how our family has gone through transitions. And I have become the Dr. Mama I am today. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also a lovely little bit later on you'll hear about uh, how the podcast came to be as well. Yes, we um, let Rebecca kind of just take whatever license she wanted to with the questions. We said there isn't really much of a format and just go for it. And oh my goodness, wasn't she so good? You're going to really enjoy this episode. She was amazing. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for doing this. This was so much fun and we're really excited to share our own story. Now... Normally, at this point of the podcast, we uh, sort of introduce who the guest is and their sort of uh, credentials, uh, their sort of, you know, their start up in medicine. So, who is the guest this week, Alice? <laughs> well, it is me, obviously. And so, where did you go to school? So, I think most of this comes up in the story, but I did my medical school at Tufts University, and I'm currently a third year resident in family medicine at the Greater Lawrence Family Health Center. Lovely. Well, this is a wonderful start because the interview starts not with us saying welcome to the podcast, but Rebecca. So take it away, Rebecca. Hi, Alice and Alex. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I want to start by giving you a chance to tell us in your own words how you became a Dr. Mama and a Dr. Mama spouse. Thank you. This feels so fun to to do it the other way around. It's really exciting. It's weird to be asked that question. But it's great. <laughs> so our journey towards becoming parents began while I was still in med school. Um, so we met the summer before I started med school and Alex obviously is English. Um, no, no. How did you get that? <laughs> And um, so we were long distance for a while. I was applying. Oh, no, no. We met the summer after undergrad. Sorry. I apologize. We met the summer after undergrad. We were long distance for a while. And then we ended up actually getting legally married the year before our wedding so that we could start our green card application. And we did our legal marriage the summer before I started med school, which meant my entire first year of medical school, every time somebody would ask me, about Alex, I would weirdly interchange the words 
boyfriend, husband, and fiance. <laughs> and I think I like confused some people into thinking that I had like both a husband and a boyfriend. And I was probably coming off as very strange. Um, it's also one of those things. Remember at school where someone would like make up a like a boyfriend or a girlfriend that yeah. like, was just a long way and no one ever met them. Yeah, like. and nobody <laughs> would meet you. And then like sometimes people would like walk into a study room and you would be like on the computer screen, we'd be chatting. Um, and then we got, we had our wedding the summer after the first year of medical school and finally got a green card through and you moved over that winter. And then that was 2015. That was yeah. that was winter of 2015, which was also when my mom passed away. So that was a a winter of a lot of changes. That was my second year of medical school, and then we became pregnant the following autumn, um, and had our first child the next summer, which was 2016. And um, pregnancy was was weird. So I, um, took a, took a longer than probably should have to realize that I was pregnant. Not actually that long, like, I don't know, a week. And, um, (laughs) I just wasn't expecting it to come so quickly. It's funny actually. So you, you count pregnancies, um, in, in obstetrics, we count from the first day of your last period. So like technically, time of conception you're already two weeks pregnant right or about that and so when I told Alex oh I'm I'm pregnant and I'm five weeks pregnant he stared at me because he hadn't been in the country five weeks prior <laughs> um, he had just gotten back from England and he was like whose baby is this <laughs> Um, and, then, and then I learned about obstetrics. And then we, we talked about <laughs> dating a pregnancy from your last period. Anyway, yeah, so it was faster than expected. And um, I was feeling really nauseous and I thought I was just tired because I was a third year medical student. So I was drinking more and more coffee and it wasn't helping. Um, and finally, I figured out that I was pregnant. And I was, oh, I was on a sports medicine rotation. No, it wasn't. I was just on a family medicine rotation and I had to go in and see a kid who had chicken pox and I like walked into the room and I was asking questions. I hadn't touched the kid yet. I was asking questions. And one of the things I was like, Oh, um, I was asking mom, any chance you or anyone in the household's pregnant? Have you had like, and then I was like thinking it through in my own head and I was like, give me a second. And I like go back and I get the preceptor. I'm like, I think you need to examine this kid. I'm I'm not going to examine this kid. I'm sorry. (laughs) And he like thought I was crazy. He's still one of my preceptors now because I ended up going to residency where I happened to be doing that rotation. And I tease him like, you're the reason I realized I was pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, uh, well, my concern was you're the reason that uh, you are pregnant. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Anyway, but then the rest of pregnancy was okay. I was pretty like dizzy and nauseous up through the first trimester. And um, after that first couple of weeks, then I was on eight weeks of internal medicine, um, which was just a lot of time on our feet and stuff. And I remember being rounding we would round um we would round on the floors but then we also did two weeks in the ICU and rounding in the ICU we would just be going bed to bed so it wasn't as much walking it was just a lot of standing 
and I would get really dizzy. And I ended up telling the residents that I was pregnant long before I meant to. I was only like eight, nine weeks, something at that point. And I was like, I really need to sit down. I can't just like stand still for three hours. It's not working. But they were really kind about it. And they just got me a chair and they were like, drink some water. You're fine. If you need to go vomit, just leave. Don't worry about it. Um, they were super supportive. It was lovely. And then after that, yeah, it was okay. Um, I guess until it wasn't. Yeah. Well, okay. So that was, that was medicine. Um, and then after medicine, what was I on next? I don't, oh, I was on pediatrics. That was it. So then when I was in the second trimester, I was on pediatrics and that was when babies started being sized less than dates and I started having more frequent ultrasounds. And of course I was rounding on pediatrics and hearing everybody's horror stories about like babies and their complications and preemies. And I was like 24, 25 weeks and everyone was like talking about like viability and like challenges of preterm labor and all of these things. And I was getting worried. And I also around that time, while I was on that pediatric rotation, started having trouble focusing. And I didn't realize at the time I wasn't feeling sad. I wasn't feeling upset. I just like, I couldn't concentrate. It was taking me a really long time to write my notes I would have to like go back and repeat things. I just like couldn't keep everything straight in my head. And the rotation after that was a family medicine outpatient rotation. And it was the first rotation in medical school that I just like couldn't do. I would go into a room and talk to a patient for like an obscenely long amount of time, like a half hour or 45 minutes and then not remember a thing and like not have asked the appropriate questions. My preceptor would like ask me something and I would just start to cry. And I didn't know why I wasn't feeling sad. I just like couldn't focus anything. And that was when I was diagnosed with peripartum depression. Um, and that was interesting because I had always thought that depression was when you feel sad. Um, and I discovered that it's more complicated than that. So that was that was hard. Um, and so at that point I was not doing very well in that rotation, understandably, because my poor preceptor probably thought I was crazy. She was like, I've heard about this kid who wants to go into family medicine and has been doing great all of third year so far. And she can't seem to tell me a single thing or write a note or like get anything done. Um, and so I talked with the clerkship director and, um, he was like, yeah, I, I think you're depressed. I think that like this pregnancy is, is affecting you. Um, so I ended up actually going on a leave of absence, um, which was really hard. I felt like I was being told I was a failure. I would never be a doctor. Everything I had worked towards was pointless. Um, I really did not want to stop medical school because somehow I felt like if I stopped, then I would, I would never make it through, but I did. And it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) 
Do you, um, do you yeah. think that you benefited from your time off? I did. I benefited so much. And I go back and think about that a lot because I really didn't want to. And I fought tooth and nail because when I first got pregnant, they told me I could take a year off. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't need to take time off. And I was supposed to be due right the summer of my fourth year of medical school. So right when you're supposed to be doing your sub eyes and your um, residency applications and getting all of these things in. And my dean was like, you can't take a maternity leave during that time. And I was like, it's fine. I won't need much time. We'll just make it all work. And then that at that point when I went on leave of absence um, and I was so upset, it ended up in hindsight giving me this incredible year where I did research that I loved and I got to be on leave with my child after they were born for a full eight months. I mean, I was working, but I was working research. It was like fewer hours. It was flexible. It's, it's the medicine field version yeah. of leave where you still work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the mostly full-time working version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but not, not more than full-time working. No, no, no. Yeah. Like it was, 40 hours a week. It yeah, was yeah. 35 right. to 40 hours a week. Yeah. Um, I think I benefit from it so much. I think I, I didn't realize how much I needed some time to to f to learn to become a mom and to allow allow my brain to get back to where it needed to be, but also allow my my perspective to shift and my priorities to shift and all of these things in my life that were changing that I didn't really think about I think I had such a, a single track mind as so many med students have like your whole life you've been dedicated to this career and this focus and okay other things might happen but like I'm still gonna become the doctor that I need to be and do all these things and realizing that my my perspectives were gonna change and I hadn't anticipated that um was was a lot and I needed time to adjust to that yeah but I think it was also good because you with the with doing the research you were still able to sort of keep your foot in the door and still be doing something yeah. you love and it was it was a whole research project on food insecurity which is something you're passionate about so there was still that element of like feeling connected and feeling like you were doing something yeah career-wise that was helpful but at a at a reasonable pace yeah and <laughs> yeah because i do i do not like you your your love for work during that year was really high because yeah. you just really liked the people you were working great. with and the topic you were doing with. and It was so good. Yeah. I do really enjoy. I never enjoyed research before that year. And then that year taught me how fulfilling research could be and how there are some types of research that are just so exciting and you can imagine how this could actually change the lives of your patients I always felt like changing my patients lives was something I would do medically one-on-one -on -one with each patient and then seeing more of a big picture perspective was like when I do this research I can produce data and that data can produce articles which can inform um, policy which can inform practice at large and that can change lives in a in a bigger in a larger scope was just so inspiring and motivating. Well, like one year. of those things was that in that year you helped set up like the mobile market. That was and fun. That 
um lot in lawrence and now that like like sees like nearly 2000 people a month is it like 1500 <laughs> no i think like 400 no no but the over the overall scope like oh, it affects like, because one like that one person from the family comes feeds. so it feeds a lot of yeah. people i don't remember the exact numbers off the top yeah. of my head anymore but we feed a lot of people in our city which is good yeah that's fun yeah it sounds like it turned out to be a really great year for you even though it was something that you weren't anticipating yeah doing just like so many things in parenthood (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. so true so um and so that was your first child when did you get pregnant and have your second child so I got pregnant with my second um the winter of my fourth year of medical school so I had gone back Finished out my third year because I had that one rotation. I repeated family medicine. Um, Took step two and then did my fourth year. And it was all going swimmingly. And we were talking about, you know, our first child is a year and a half old. We want to have kids not too far apart. Um, At that point was a year old. We were thinking, oh, we'll have a kid at the end of fourth year, because that's what everyone says. Like the end of the fourth year of medical school is the best time to have a child. Um, cause it's flexible and you can get time and everything. Um, so it didn't go as fast the second time. And I ended up getting pregnant in the winter. And so then I was due the fall of my intern year, which was not what we had hoped, but what happens happens. Um, so I remember doing out the math and realizing this baby is not going to be born in medical school. This baby is going to be born in internship. And on match day, I matched to my top choice program. I was super excited. It was the same place where I had done my research. I had rotated there multiple times as a medical student. I had so many mentors that worked there. Um, and I called the program director and said, I'm really, really excited. The program director and the residency coordinator, both of them. I'm really excited to come. I'm so excited about the program, but I need to tell you I'm currently eight weeks or so pregnant and I'm due in October. Um, and they were both <laughs> so kind. I, I was worried that they were going to be like, well, I guess you're going to need to wait and come next year or something, but they didn't. And they said, you know, we'll support you and we're going to help you build your schedule and, and make it work however you need it to work. That was good. And it helps That's great. Like one of the, one of the team of the sort of like management team of the program, uh, is a mother as well. A doctor yes. Mother, so. Yes. Our residency director is also a mom. And I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah, that's great. A nice initial phone call. Yes. <laughs> but it's also at that time where you don't really want to be telling everybody that you're like eight weeks pregnant because there's so many things that could go wrong between yeah. then and then. But yeah, there was, there, I think, didn't they know before most of our family? I think. Yeah, we yeah. hadn't actually told, I think we had told my dad and almost nobody else yet. And you're uh, one of our best mates, a nurse practitioner and guest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we hadn't told anybody else, but we told them because I was like, this affects my schedule for the upcoming year and is really important, I guess. Yeah, it's true. There are a lot of things that you have to push up because there are so many other things that scheduling and other issues that sort of cascade down. Yeah. 
Um, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no. I was just going to ask. So, I mean, it sounds like you guys um, started having kids pretty quickly after getting married. Did you always know that you wanted to have children? Yeah, we're, we're family. Yeah. Like both are, I mean, Alice has a much larger family than I do, um, just extended family. But both of us grew up in like very close family settings and like yeah. family gatherings and just the whole the whole idea of family has always been a big part of both our lives. So I don't it wasn't even I don't think we even like questioned it that much. It was it, it wasn't really much of a debate. It was like it was more to do with timing than it was yeah. like whether we're gonna have any children. We always not. knew we were gonna have kids. We're both one of three. We both love children. We both knew that we always wanted children. We did always talk about timing because I was, at the time we met, I was already planning on applying to medical school. There was never a question about like, was medical school going to be part of our lives? Was medical training going to be part of our lives? Um, And when we got married, I was already in medical school. So we knew that like, this is the general timeline. Um, But I also knew that, you know, a lot of, a lot of people I know in medicine have kids after training and you can't have kids during medical school, but it's complicated. Um, and so we talked several times about like, when is the best time? But actually shortly after we met, I think around, around when we met, I ended up actually doing genetic testing. Um, my, my family is Ashkenazi Jewish and a lot of people in my dad's family have breast cancer. Um, and so my dad had ended up doing genetic testing, um, when we were younger and tested positive for a BRCA mutation. And so I did testing and tested positive. And so we were having these conversations of, I have been told I should plan a mastectomy and bilateral oophorectomy for when I'm around 35 and I'm going into this field where I'm not going to really finish my training until I'm around 35. So I, I could wait and then delay the oophorectomy and mastectomy, but, or not necessarily the mastectomy, but like that's putting other things at risk. And, and so we went back and forth as to like, what, what are we willing to sacrifice in order to have the family we want to have? Are we willing to risk not being able to have the ability to completely focus on medical school and residency and training and having just that one focus in our lives throughout that time and have children earlier or are we really willing to risk, you know, an, an ovarian cancer or breast cancer that we can't do as much to prevent um, if we have it later? And I think we decided, you know what, there's never going to be a good time. And um, I I happen to have genetic risk from both sides of my family. I, I get a BRCA mutation from my dad, but my mom also died of ovarian cancer. And so I have this like, I don't know, this deep fear of my ovaries, which is weird. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think I just decided, you know, I don't want to put it off. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's start having kids now. But we did end up with that kind of weird complication where we had the like that sort of like 35, mid 30s idea of of a cutoff. But also in 2015, I think during your second year med school, it was the year your mum died. But I also got 
um, seriously ill um, and ended up in hospital for a couple of months. Um, this was through um, what turned out to be like a really big flare of psoriatic arthritis. It was and when, when you were initially and, diagnosed with, with psoriatic arthritis. Yeah. Um, and it was it was just a flare of a load of things I didn't know I had that all came to head, um, but ended up in rehab for like two yeah. months and so and then I was in a wheelchair for like a year a year I, and a half yeah so there was that kind of suddenly that moment of like okay we've we've we had this plan about that end but also I'm currently in this medical yeah situation like how, how well do we squeeze this in how do we figure this out yeah um yeah and I obviously I didn't know quite what my future was going to look like um, but I, we knew that kind of there was that element then of I was going to have like this chronic pain thing through my life. Um, and so trying to sort of like, I, th I think for me, it was like more coming to terms with that. I won't necessarily be able to be the, be able to do all the dad things that I hoped I could do. Um, um, but then, I yeah, but but that happened before and then the cancer thing was ahead and so like i had time to sort of get used to that um but that kind of slowed us down a bit i think yeah i think it kind of it was another component of throughout our whole planning a family and becoming a family we just over and over had to exercise the like the being comfortable with the unknown and we don't know how having kids in training will go and we don't know how waiting would go and we don't know how having kids when Alex is ill will go and we don't know how waiting will go. So we just will go for it, <laughs> go for it and see what happens. Well, I do have some wonderful memories of when Olivia was small um, just riding around on my wheelchair with me, yes. like on my lap, just <laughs> zooming around the house. Like she absolutely loved it. <laughs> oh my goodness, she did. And our niece Lily, who's two years no, two years older. Yeah, yeah two and a bit years older than our oldest. Um, she was born right before I started med school, and she loved the wheelchair. She would sit on Alex's lap when Alex was not in the chair. If he was just like on the couch or whatever, she would climb into the chair. She would like demand to be pushed around. It just became like part of the family. It was hilarious. Well, I also <laughs> got to choose what type of chair I had. And I went for this bright, colorful bright orange. orange chair. Because oh, like, nice. if, you, if you're going, if you're going to have to have a wheelchair, you've got to at least make it cheerful and colorful. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good choice. Yeah. <laughs> But wow, yeah. So you guys were dealing with a lot of very, very weighty decisions pretty early on. Um, and so, and you clearly made the choice that worked out best for you guys, <laughs> um, which is, you know, any, whatever you can expect from, from anyone at the time, but that that's quite a lot that you guys were dealing with. Yeah. yeah talking about it, looking back at it. it suddenly makes you realize quite how much there was going on i feel like day to day we've always been people who are like we we practice mindfulness by not not intentionally unintentional mindfulness is that a thing um just kind of like i don't know what the future is going to be so we're going to just focus on the present because there's too many things happening um and that was probably actually the first time we started doing that because prior to that, 
growing up, I've always been somebody who was like, I had my life planned out 20 years in advance. I knew exactly what I was going to be doing all the time. I was always planning, always organized, always scheduling. And when first I was diagnosed, I, I got the genetic testing, I had the BRCA mutation, and then my mom passed away, and then Alex got sick, and all of these things happening one after the other. I think it was just each one was another lesson of like, you can't plan 20 years in advance. Like I had this plan that in 20 years, I was going to be an attending doctor with my mom and my husband healthy and well at my side and little kids. And it turned out none of that was going to happen. And so I needed to rearrange my image of the future, um, which just helped me see like, it's okay to not plan 20 years in advance and it's okay to live in the moment. And so learning how to practice more mindfulness and just being present with where we are right now, I think made a big difference. Yeah. And probably as a skill that's helped you significantly yeah. being a parent during residency alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So, um, Talk to me about the parental leaves that you got and how they were similar and how they were different between medical school and residency. I know we talked a little bit about this in the episode that we did focusing on parental leave, but for those who weren't able to listen, maybe a little bit of a recap. Yeah. So they were really different because my first one, I was a medical student. So um, what I ended up doing was doing what my medical school called a research concentration um, research concentration program or something, um, where you needed to have, you could extend your medical training by up to a year. And within that year, you needed to have six months contiguous, um, research time. And you didn't pay medical school tuition. You just paid a continuation fee, but you maintained Throughout that year, your status as a medical student, so your loans didn't go into repayment, and you could keep your health insurance. Um, and so it kind of gave me this year of flexibility. The one hard part was the rule that it needed to be six months of contiguous um, research time because my leave ended up starting somewhat unexpectedly in April or... March, uh, May, May, or May or April of um, my third year of medical school, I went on leave earlier than I had planned to because I had gotten, um, I had developed peripartum depression and I wasn't able to focus and I wasn't really able to do my third year. And so I went on leave earlier than planned, which meant I had like two months before my child was due in the beginning of July. Um, and I needed to go back in March of the following year to be able to repeat that rotation, um, which meant that in order to have a six month continuous block, I needed to go back like two months after my due date, which felt strange that I was being given this full year of flexibility. But even with a full year of flexibility, the constraints within it meant that I didn't actually get a full three months of maternity leave. I needed to go back after two months to be able to meet the requirements of a six-month continuous research block, um, which was frustrating because it was obviously all unpaid because I was still paying as a medical student. And it was 
my first child, I had no idea what I was doing. I was recovering from delivery and all I wanted to do was be home with my baby and I needed to go to work and go to the clinic and start this research project going, which I was excited about. I wanted to do the research project. I just wasn't quite ready. So that felt crummy. Do you, do you remember what the original plan was before uh, the depression kicked in? Because I don't remember what the original plan was going to be. So there were a couple stages of it. So my very original plan was not to take any leave. Yes, and I, <laughs> I was going to take... Well, I was going to have one block. So in our, in my medical school, the fourth year is divided into 12 one-month blocks. And of those, three of them can be either completely off or, yeah, I think you can have three blocks completely off. Or maybe it's two. Two blocks completely off. Um, and that's normally what people use for interviews for medical school and vacation time and whatnot. Um and so my plan was to take one four-week block off at the beginning of fourth year when I would have the baby and then just keep going. Um, and when I first started having complications with the pregnancy, size less than days, my dean pointed out to me, you know, like pregnancy, you can't quite predict that well. Like you probably need more than just one month of wiggle room and all of this. And like, it's really okay. So at that point I had planned, I, we started talking about doing this research program, but I had planned to finish out third year and even start fourth year and then do my research block starting like on my due date so that I would take um, the full, like I would take several months off after the baby was born and then come back, do my six months of research and then go and complete fourth year. But then because my research, my year off started unexpectedly early because I started having the peripartum depression, it kind of threw that schedule out the window because I couldn't use the like, two months before the baby was due, I was doing research and working during that time, but it couldn't count towards the six month continuous. So I had to have this like research, then break, then research, research, then maternity leave, then research. And mm -hmm. the thing I find absolutely crazy, and I think we touched on this on our leave bit as well, was um, that trying to figure out this leave but like you were pretty much stuck into doing research. You were excited about it anyway, but if you didn't want to do it, you're kind of, that was your only option because if you, if you hadn't have done that, we would have lost our health insurance, which, um, because I'm self-employed. So I, and, and I'm an immigrant. So like, I am not a great person to be able to get good health insurance for the family. Yeah. Um, and then, so then we'd lose the health insurance. Technically, you'd have to go into loan yeah. repayment and you wouldn't be having a job. And like, that I remember that being so incredibly stressful. Yeah, technically I wouldn't have lost my health insurance because I was eligible for Medicaid, yeah. but you would have lost your health insurance because yeah. you couldn't get Medicaid and you were self-employed. So it was a question of if I wasn't a student, um, how could we continue to keep you on your insurance? Yeah. So that was why the maintaining my status as a student also, having my student loans not go into repayment, but health insurance became a big well, and there. it's because it uh, there were some things I could get, but I, at this point I was already quite ill, so yeah. like I needed decent health right. insurance because yeah. otherwise we'd have no money left, <laughs> so and we had to pay right. a lot of money already for that. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And Medicaid is not your best option when you have really complex yeah. needs. Unfortunately, we yeah. wish that it was, we but it, we so. we know the reality. Yeah. 
so. And talk to me about how um, it was similar or different when you took leave during residency. Yeah. So in residency, it was a lot more straightforward because I didn't have complications with that pregnancy. Thank goodness. I was really lucky. My um, obstetric provider had me start on an SSRI as soon as I got pregnant, just kind of prophylactically. Um, So I did not, uh, I was very lucky for me. I did not get depressed during that pregnancy and I was able to work all the way right up until I went into labor um, as I had scheduled it. So the way my program schedules around pregnancies is um, for residents, once you're 36 weeks, you're only scheduled for outpatient because if you're on inpatient and you go unexpectedly into labor, it just makes scheduling difficult for everybody else. Um, And then once you're 38 weeks, you're only scheduled to see acutes so that if you go unexpectedly into labor, you don't at least have any patients booked that they need to reschedule. So I made it past that 38-week mark. And then at 38 and four, I started spontaneously contracting and I continued working for that day. And I would like come back into the precepting room and like have a couple contractions and then like (laughs) go see my next patient and then like come back. And everyone was like, Alice, just go home. Um, (laughs) So the next day I didn't come into work. And then that night I had a baby, which was great. Um, And I had already talked with our scheduling um, our scheduling coordinator, our research coordinator, um, about we were going to do, I uh, was going to take six weeks of leave of absence, which was just unpaid leave. And then I was going to use my vacation time for intern year, which was, I think, two weeks plus a two week elective block, um, which our program let you do um, a jokingly called developmental pediatrics elective where you watch your baby grow, meaning you're <laughs> home with your baby and, um, you do one half day in clinic a week and you have to write something about watching your baby grow. I think Alex you wrote and I, a song. Yeah, we yeah. wrote a song. <laughs> we wrote a song from the perspective of the older sibling about what happens when a baby comes into your life. It was a tragedy <laughs> song. <laughs> That's amazing. (laughs) It was good. Um, So yeah, from that perspective, it was actually so much easier than in medical school because it was, it was unpaid, but my, in medical school, I was still paying. So at least I wasn't paying anybody to not work. Um, Mm -hmm. So I got six, I had, I was basically 10 weeks off and the last two weeks I was just working a half day in clinic, which was actually a kind of a nice transition to be able to like go back and be like, oh, I can see patients for like one clinic session a week and not completely fall apart. So that's good. Um, And it also gave us a chance to start making sure the baby would take a bottle. Um, Mm -hmm. So I would pump, I had been using a Haka pump so I could start to develop like some milk, like, some freezer stash of breast milk at home before I went back. And then once I went back for those half days, I started pumping. Um, and we were really lucky. Our, our first baby was a little harder, but our second took a bottle. Absolutely. No problem. My nieces never took a bottle. And so I was really nervous, but both of our kids took bottles just fine. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's great. Of, that's continued into uh, later childhood as well because yes. they just do not want to stop eating half the time. Yes, so. our kids are really good eaters. They will eat absolutely everything. And we are so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell me about any, you know, during residency, I think, um, you know, life gets really challenging when things that are unexpected comes up. How have um, you been able to handle um, any of the sort of unexpected challenges, especially with two children during residency? Yeah. Two children during residency and a global pandemic. Yes, <laughs> yes, and a pandemic. I forgot to, I can't believe I forgot to and mention you forgot the pandemic. About the pandemic. <laughs> I just forget about it. I think I, I just want I think it's well, just recently. implied. Yeah. 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 Pandemic is always implied these days. Yeah. Um, I think it has made me feel always this we've talked about this before on, on the podcast of having this constant tug of war feeling. And I think I didn't appreciate it as much when I had one child because it was, it wasn't easy, but it was easier to always have a backup system in place. Um, but then once they were two and we had a, one that was breastfeeding again, there were just more, um, more parts to the puzzle so when something would unexpectedly come up, it was harder to deal with. I remember one time as an intern, there was something, somebody had messed up the schedules and um, both me and the senior on our block were scheduled to leave at two o'clock and it turned out it was an error. I was supposed to be scheduled to stay until 11 p.m., but I didn't know that. And then I had gotten to work and we were talking about the schedule for the day. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving it too. And my senior said, no, you're not. And I was like, oh. Um, and so I all of a sudden was like, I'm staying until 11. So I like panic called. I think actually Alex was in England at the time or you were unavailable. I was to either gigging care. that night or in tour. Yeah, you weren't around. So I like panic call my dad and my sister being like, I just found out I'm staying at work until 11 p.m. and I'm supposed to take the kids at three and I don't know what to do. Um, my sister very, very kindly took the kids and that night and put them to bed and was really, really sweet about it. But it was like one of those early experiences of just like unexpected things come up during residency and that's just how the schedule works. And sometimes you get a text at 6 a.m. saying you've been pulled in on backup and you are now doing... Um, Clinic starting at eight instead of whatever else you're supposed to be doing, or you're now coming on to inpatient and um, childcare kind of has to work itself around that. The other bit that kind of I remember realizing that this is going to be rather hard is that like as a professional musician, my line of work, I kind of have a good idea roughly where I'm going to be touring and what's happening like two up to two years in advance. But in residency, you don't find your schedule for the next year until like a month or two before. Yeah. Um, uh, so I kind of just have to blindly program my couple of years. And then we then have to scrabble to figure out as suddenly I've ended up on tour in England during a two week nights rotation. And like, it's and just we need like crazy. 24 hour a day childcare because yeah. I'm working nights and you're away. And yeah. um, I think it was, 
for both of us a lesson in we're going to need to be flexible in ways we didn't think we could be with our jobs. So I think for both of us, we felt like our jobs, it wasn't, wasn't possible to like, it is not possible to be flexible as a resident or as a musician. Like you cannot back out of a gig. You cannot leave a rotation. And it turns out you actually can when there's an emergency for both of those things. Um, And it feels so much in the culture, both of music, I think, music and medicine that like it is never okay to ask for help and to back out on someone and we both discovered that sometimes you really just have to and it feels awful and you feel guilty but you need to find that flexibility in order to be able to make family work mm-hmm. and what who provides the child care on a regular basis for you guys and did that change during the pandemic or you know what was pre versus during (laughs) we we originally actually first tried uh daycare we did that didn't work very well well and it, it was it was while i was away on tour um and we couldn't really use the local daycare very well um, I think you you remember the story more because you were actually living it. I was away. <laughs> yeah. So we went to a local daycare center um, and it was one of the big chains because they had longer hours than like the home daycares, but it was very expensive. So we were paying something like $700 a week. No, that sounds too much. Probably. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know. It was a kid. lot of money for at that point, just one kid and drop off was at seven and pickup was at six. six. Um, and so I would drop the baby off, like right when they opened, get the tea downtown. I was working um, at that point. I was on like a renal rotation downtown. And then I was on, I don't remember. I was on a few different rotations. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't driving cause I was going downtown. So I would then get the tea back. And I remember several times actually taking an Uber because I couldn't get to, like I didn't have enough time to get back to the daycare center on the T in order to make it before pickup. And I also remember several times being like in a procedure. I don't know what rotation this was on, but I remember taking a Nexplan on out. So I must've been on like Gyne or family medicine and like looking at the clock, realizing like daycare pickup is in 10 minutes. I don't have the next one on out of the arm yet. I'm going to need to take it out like this has already been complicated it's probably gonna need a stitch it's gonna need a bandage this patient needs explanation and i need to be in the next city over picking up my child in 10 minutes or i'm gonna get charged by the minute when i'm late um and i was late and it was bad and that's when we and that's when we realized yeah (laughs) daycare didn't work for us so um we ended up my brother had actually already gotten an au pair at that point so we talked to my brother and my sister-in-law and they had an au pair who was wonderful. And we were like, that sounds like a good idea. Um, so we got an au pair and our first au pair was wonderful. She was from Argentina. We're still good friends with her. Um, she came in, she was li- she lived with us. She worked 45 hours a week. Um, we would sit down once a week and draw out a schedule with her and say, okay, this is when Alex is working. This is when I'm working. This is when we need you to work. And the au pair program has pretty strict rules. So you always have to have at least a day and a half contiguous off every week. You have to have one full weekend off per month. You can't work more than 10 hours 
in a day, like in a 24-hour period, and you can't work more than 45 hours a week. So it wasn't just like complete flexibility, but it was significantly more than daycare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was really, really good. And it turned out that the cost, because we weren't able to go to just like a home daycare, we were going to a daycare center that had longer hours. Um, the cost of the au pair program was about the same anyway. So we were paying. And then once we had a second child, significant, it was significantly less. Mm-hmm. So we were paying like the same or less money for like a much more flexible option. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we still have an au pair and we love it. And we were so lucky during the pandemic to already have an au pair because it meant that our childcare didn't change during the pandemic at all. And, um, we had at that time, our second au pair who was actually also from Argentina and also super fabulous and lovely. And we're still friends with her. And we, um, the week that, the week that everything shut down, she was actually on vacation. Um, I had been scheduled for, I was on nights for a week and then we were supposed to go on vacation as a family to Puerto Rico and she was going to go on a vacation to a week for a week to Mexico to be able to see her family. She was in Mexico so that she could see her family who she hadn't seen in a year and a half. So they were meeting up in Mexico because it was like halfway between. Um, and we had a lot of panicked texts and phone calls back and forth and she ended up, she was trying to change her flights. She ended up making it back like the day before they closed the borders. Wow. Um, it was, it was pretty stressful, but that once she stressful. made it back, it was fine. <laughs> yeah. We were like desperately like, what are we going to do if she doesn't make it back? What are we going to do if she's stuck in Mexico? Um, Which actually was a silly thing in terms of childcare it would have been fine because at that point all well, my yes. gigs had been canceled and I was home anyway. But... <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't back. really yeah. know that that was what was going to be happening that for a long true, time yeah. at the time. No, it was just, well, that everything was, the early was pandemic like... problem. We didn't have the knowledge we have now. Yeah. To know exactly. That long yeah. We just had no idea what the next weeks and months were going to bring. So yeah, we did. She got home. She changed her flight. She got home. She had like a weird, scary layover in New York. And that was like, well, New York was the epicenter. And we were like, oh, my goodness, she's in New York. This is really bad. Um, But she didn't get sick and she got home and we all kept working and it was good. (laughs) (laughs) It all worked out for the best. (laughs) Yes. Having an au pair has been literally one of the best choices we've ever made. But particularly this last year has has really made it really valuable, right? It did get complicated when our our au pair that we just had, um, the one who was with us at the start of the pandemic, her time with us was ending. So the au pair visa is good for 13 months and you can extend for an optional up to 12 months more. Um, and she had already been an au pair with a family in Arizona for a year before she was with us. So we were her, we were her extension year. Um, so at the end of the year, she couldn't extend. She had to go back. They ended up changing it right before she was going to leave, saying that you can extend an extra six months because of the pandemic, because of the borders being closed. Um, but we didn't know that while we were planning. So... 
we needed to be able to get another au pair. And it was right when they had changed the laws in Massachusetts, which changed the pricing for au pairs. Um, they, because au pairs previously, it was, you were paying them a stipend, but because you paid the agency and you were doing room and board and they were, you were paying for their education because they take classes while they're here also. Um, it was, you were just paying a stipend. You weren't paying a living wage. Um, and then they changed the law in Massachusetts to say, no, you need to pay a living wage to your au pair, which makes sense, of course. Like, I think everybody should be paid a living wage, of course. But it was a big difference to us because we were used to paying the, like, 200 a week stipend that goes straight to the au pair and then the rest of the money to the agency and the housing and the food and the education and everything. And now we were paying for everything else, but now additionally paying minimum wage to the au pair, which was just a lot more than expected. Um during a year where it yeah, wasn't during really the pandemic. Money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we had initially thought we weren't going to continue with the au pair program, but then the pandemic hit. So we were like, well, I guess we need to because we need childcare. Um, but they had closed the borders and no new au pairs were being allowed in. Well, yeah, but the and, and the uh, the last uh, administration had also basically like scrapped that. And they were also like closing down the au pair program. So we had mm. discovered we had initially not applied to continue with the program, and then all of a sudden needed to continue to the program and couldn't get a new au pair. So we were scrambling and talking to everybody, and finally our au pair at the time was like, "I know a girl. She's with a family in." the next town over, but she's unhappy with them because they're having her do all kinds of housework, not au pair activities. She wants to rematch, which means like switch families. Um, and she would be great. So we like talked to her and talked to the agency and switched. And it all happened within like two weeks. It was the fastest thing ever. (laughs) And she ended up coming like three days before our au pair left. We were like literally down to the wire. Um, but we were so grateful that she was able to come. And we, despite all of the chaos and the fear that we were going to end up without any childcare, and I was still going to be working all of these, like, cause this was going into the second surge at that point. This was around like Christmas time. Um, we were like thinking I'm working ICU. I'm working all of these crazy hours. It's like the second surge of COVID. And we're all of a sudden not going to have any childcare. And then she like uh, magically appeared from the heavens, dropped down into our family <laughs> and is incredible. And she's still with us. And she is from Ecuador. She's fabulous. She does all of these arts and crafts problems, um, uh, arts and crafts activities with our children. They love her so much. And it's great. That's yeah. great. That's amazing. I feel like that's the story of our, our parenting and our family. Like everything is chaos and then it turns out fine. And then it works out exactly. with a lot of work. Yeah. It doesn't yes. work out magically. It works out yeah. because of a lot of work that you put into it. <laughs> I always feel like that's important to acknowledge. Yeah. Um, so I think this segues nicely. Into tell, tell us about how you guys split up the parenting responsibilities. Mm. That's interesting. Um, at least... To, on the on the most part, um, at least pre-pandemic, it was who wasn't working would be with the kids. Um, we actually ended up not seeing each other a large amount outside, really, because uh, as a professional musician, a large chunk of my work would be like Thursday through Sunday, um, and when you're particularly when you're an outpatient or even inpatient, and you have like a one day weekend, it's a Saturday or a Sunday. But I will be, often be 
maybe around in the morning, but then off off to set up for the gig and do the gig or away for the weekend, you know. So we didn't really cross over that much. So Yeah, so we would make these like complex spreadsheets of childcare for each week where we was mostly divided between, okay, here's when Alex is working, here's when I'm working, here are the au pairs hours, here's where we're going to fill in with any family members. I would often send, you know, desperate emails to my brother, my sister, my dad. I need three hours of childcare on this day. Who can possibly take my children? Um, and everybody was amazing. And, and we would make these Excel spreadsheets that like had hour by hour who had the kids and it worked but it meant that we we saw each other very little because it i we were both of us were always either like working or with the children and that basically took up 24 hours a day yeah um but then from the pandemic um it's been interesting because actually at the beginning of the pandemic you were at home a lot more because you did about three months of telehealth which was amazing um but I think on the most part, just because um, Alice is still breastfeeding our youngest, so quite often the responsibility ends up, you know, I'll be with our oldest and um, you'll be with the youngest just for the for the nursing possibilities. Um, but we've also come over the last year to realise that for our own sanity, each of our own sanities, and for our kids' sanity as well, that actually sometimes we will just take them off separately. So we'll have like a Papa and Olivia adventure or a Papa and Felix adventure while Alice is with, with the, uh, the other kid. And um, so, they're, so they're having their own time with one parent. Yeah. Um, but also actually kind of learning that on a weekend or a time when we're all together, like one of us will just turn around and say, right, I just, I just I need, need a bit of me time just for a moment. I just need to be done for a moment and that's okay. Um, and like we'll just disappear for like twenty minutes and either lie down or like mm-hmm. pack away laundry or you know just have a moment away. You know it's the joys of having a two and a half year old and a five year old is they're both very opinionated and they there's yeah. days where they get along like so incredibly well and like the best of friends and it's so beautiful to see. And other days like this morning and yesterday morning where they are at each other's throats uh, every minute. And just as soon as something gets resolved, another problem, you know, it's just like squabbling to extremes. So that sort of, yeah, we've definitely kind of started learning that we can help each other out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's key that when one of you needs your alone time, the other person also doesn't need alone time at the same time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quite often we do actually need alone time at the same time, but we can, we can sort of see it out, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing exactly. there's a light at the end of the tunnel to have ten minutes yeah. of quiet is helpful. Exactly. Yeah. So I, since you oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Since since you mentioned that you're still breastfeeding, talk to me about how all of that that journey was a decision to breastfeed and pumping and and all of that that brings. Yeah. So I always wanted to breastfeed. I, my mom was a midwife and I think just the ethos of natural childbirth and breastfeeding and kind of the whole um, paradigm of that was very much drilled into me from a young age as like this is ideal and wonderful Um, and It was definitely simplified in my mind when I was younger, and it turns out everything is much more complicated, but it was also just something that I had always really wanted to do, and it was 
it was a large part of our decision to have kids earlier because we knew even if I delayed an oophorectomy to be able to have kids after residency, I probably wouldn't delay the mastectomy. So then I would be having kids later, but I wouldn't be able to breastfeed. So if I wanted to have like normal spontaneous pregnancies without IVF, without having to like harvest and freeze eggs and save them and whatnot. And if I wanted to breastfeed children, we would need to do that earlier. Um, and it was also a large part of the, the decision to have two kids somewhat close in age. We, we kind of wanted that anyway so that they could play, but we also knew that like, if we want to have kids and I want to be able to have the flexibility to breastfeed the second as long as they choose without needing to wean them to do a mastectomy, then I want to have them earlier because that would take the time crunch out of the picture. Um, so I was pretty determined that I was, I was going to breastfeed my children. They were never going to get a drop of formula and it was all going to be great. Um, and then I had kids and discovered that it was, it was hard and it was complicated. Um, with my first, it actually, it wasn't with my first, we were so lucky and they nursed really well. I always had enough milk. I, I was about an exact producer. Like I didn't have a, an oversupply. We'd never had a huge stash, but I was always able to pump enough for the next day and they would take the right amount from the bottle and, and it all worked out well. And they transitioned to cow's milk when they turned one. And then I would still like breastfeed for comfort at bedtime. But other than that, they just had cow's milk and, and it turned out well. And I think part of that is also because you were working 35 hours a week and not 80 hours a week. Well, for like the first, yeah, for yeah. the first like eight months of, of the baby's life. Um, but my second one, it became much more complicated. So it actually, it was complicated right from the beginning. Um, Right after Felix was born, he was jittery. They got a blood sugar. He was hypoglycemic. I had like passed out. I was so exhausted after he was born. Um, he, he was a very long labor. He was OP and I ended up like stuck at lip for three hours and then like pushed out to a shoulder and it was, it was not a great delivery. Um, so like I had a baby and immediately passed out and fell asleep. Um, and when I woke up, I discovered that he was in special care and getting IV sugar, um, which I was like pretty confused by. I was like disoriented. Um, but what it turned into was a full week in special care nursery getting IV sugar and getting formula. And, um, I was allowed to breastfeed. I wasn't, they didn't have boarding, so I couldn't stay in the hospital after I was discharged. So like postpartum day two, I was discharged. I couldn't sleep over in the hospital, but I could stay in special care during the day and nurse him Q three hours. And then I would go home at night and then come back at like 5 a.m., to to continue the cycle and then when I was gone he would get formula and I would pump and give him the small amount of colostrum that I'd produced but it may it was a lesson I was it was um it was a lesson in patience for me and it, I felt so inadequate because I would give him the like three drops of colostrum that I produced and then the special care nurses would give him like a 30 cc bottle of formula. And I was like, what is wrong with my body? Why can't I make what my baby needs? 
Like my baby is continuously having these blood sugars in the 30s and I'm giving him all I've got. And it was so easy the first time around. And now it's not. And what's wrong with me? Why am I, why am I a horrible, ineffective mother? Um, and that was rough. Yeah. That wig does bring back a very fun memory, though, before we carry on with this story. That, um, <laughs> I don't remember that wig being fun. <laughs> no, there was one. No, there was one moment that was fun, though, which Ooh. was uh, when a load of your residents came to visit. Oh, yeah. um, and obviously a load of family medicine residents and... Uh, I feel it turns out that not just residents, interns, interns a whole bunch yeah, of yeah. like, like fall interns, like they weren't that far in. Yeah, but it it turns out uh, they could only interact with newborns in one way, and so one by one they each went in and sort of did an, an exam on the baby, and <laughs> <laughs> it was they were only allowed. You were only allowed to have one guest at a time in special care. Well, one parent like two adults total in the special care nursery with the baby because there was a bunch of babies in there. They didn't want too many people. So it was either Alex or me would be in there with baby Felix. And then each resident, each of my co-interns would go in one at a time to meet the baby. And each of them, they would go in, meet the baby, <laughs> do a newborn exam. Like without like, that was just like what they, like we were watching. I was watching mostly from the hallway yeah. while Alex was in there with each of them. And it was so funny because they didn't seem to notice they were doing it, but they would like <laughs> see the baby. And then I would watch them like, fontanelle and belly <laughs> and hips and reflexes it was so great there's like muscle memory for everybody exactly. <laughs> yeah. it's like there's a baby in front of me what do i do with a baby this is what i do this with a what baby. i do <laughs> yeah, see that was a fun point that, that, was, that was that's right. amazing <laughs> yeah. oh, and then yeah. after that actually breastfeeding with felix got a lot better and my supply came in and his blood sugar stabilized and he did really really well I ended up having a small amount of oversupplies, so I was able to store a lot. Um, and then that spring, I had an ICU rotation, and I was on a Q524. So what we would do, we would have 24-hour call, and then you were off for 24 hours, and then you would work two long call days, which were like a 12-hour shift, like a normal shift, and then a short call day, which was like... You would work seven till two, and then you would have a half day in clinic. Um, so it was still like a regular length day, but the afternoon you were in clinic, and then you're 24. So it was just like a really intense month, and during that month, all of a sudden, my supply crashed. And I went from producing like a little bit more than he was eating to way less than he was eating. And he like gobbled through all of my oversupply within a week. And all of a sudden, Alex was like panicked calling me from home like we have no more breast milk and we need more breast milk. And we ended up having to like urgently run out to the pharmacy and get formula and this baby has never had formula before and I'm not home and I'm exhausted. I don't actually, how was that for you? Because I don't remember much of it. it I don't remember. It was a bit of a blur during that yeah. period, but it was stressful. It was just because you can see the very visual, like the frozen yeah. milk supply just go really and like knowing that yeah, that he had never had formula before. And, like, I think we're lucky in that. that but he, he took it fine. Yeah, he was fine. It was, fine. like, kind of the good. moral of the story that keeps coming up was, like, he didn't care. Like, he had <laughs> yeah. formula, and he was fine, and he's still fine. 
And formula is perfectly good for babies. Like that is what formula is designed for. That's what it's for. Yes. That's why it exists. (laughs) This is why it exists. And it was totally fine. And everybody turned out well. And we still were able to keep our great nursing relationship. And we supplemented for formula for that month. And actually after that month, I was then on some more normal rotation. I think, I I mean, I was still, I was on medicine or something. Like it was still intense, but it wasn't, I didn't have the 24 hour calls anymore. And my supply picked back up and I, we actually were able to wean him back off of formula Yeah, and continue with just breast milk until he turned one. And we still nurse for comfort at bedtime and he's a very happy, well-adjusted child. He's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so hard to, to pump and, you know, manage everything else that's happening with your schedule and maintaining your supply is, I feel like nearly impossible. (laughs) I think I was really lucky, actually. There's a lot of hard things about having a kid as an intern, but actually there is a lot of things that are better that you don't realize it's better when you're an intern than when you're a senior resident. Because I would do things like when I was rounding on medicine, I would go through my pumping schedule with the seniors and the chiefs ahead of time. Like we would, we're, we're going to round. Okay. I am due to pump at this time and this time. And we would organize it so that we would see a chunk of my patients. And then the other intern would see a bunch of theirs. Well, I would run back to the resident room and pump. And then I would come back and we would see the next chunk of mine and finish rounds. And then we would all go back for lunch and I would pump again and things like that, that are completely impossible when you're a senior resident, you have to be present on rounds all the time. But as an intern, you're only responsible for your half of the patients. So I could like see all of my patients run back, pump and do all of my notes and my charting and then go back. And I actually had a lot more flexibility because I wasn't the one in charge. I was just an intern. And there were other people who could pick up the slack that I was creating <laughs> and, and it was totally acceptable. And I think I didn't, at the time I was like, this is crazy. How can I possibly do this? But talking to other folks who had babies later on in residency, it actually was probably as good a time as any to have a baby during intern year because you do have more more layers of support, more layers of backup as an intern than any other time in training. Yeah, I agree. And it's great, though. It sounds like you had a really supportive culture and co-residents and attendings, yeah. which is They were great. so amazing. I was so lucky. And they, I remember one of my co-residents very fiercely, she was my senior at the time, very fiercely saying, you, I was, I happened to be routing on OB that week. She was like, you do not miss a pumping block unless the baby is at the perineum. You are going to catch the baby and then go pump for your own baby. And that's fine. I was like, okay. It's okay to prioritize my own baby's well-being and pumping. That was really good. Um, So, Alex, I would like to hear a little bit from you about what it's been like to be a spouse during all of this. It's interesting. Like, I guess, because like we said there at the beginning, like, we had a lot of very in-depth conversation about what this whole period is going to look like, especially if we're having kids. Uh, um, and no amount of talking about it ever prepares you for no. what it is. Um, and speaking to the to the few spouses I know, like it's it's 
it's a it's a real big emotional journey i think because well because you're not seeing for one you're not seeing the person you love your your best friend like as much as you want to and as much as your friends are seeing theirs you know um and you know they're going through like a really really tough time and there's there's certainly points where i want to be able to be helpful and be an emotional support but i just don't have the the context or the or the ability to be able to or the time or the time to because well, when i was free to receive emotional support you needed to be working cuz yeah. all the rest of the time i was working but there's also just a lot of things that you do um in residency yeah. and training that i just can't comprehend and like the 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 amount of i think particularly this last year like where you've just been having to deal with seeing perfectly healthy people just pass away and die and i obviously that obviously it's making me quite emotional thinking about it now but i just can't comprehend quite how crazy that is and nothing prepares you for a pandemic like that's just no that's unexpected for everybody yeah Yeah, i think it's okay to be unprepared for a pandemic but it but it does it it does make me real and it has made me realize like it's okay if i am not always the most helpful person to go for emotional support for because actually actually alice talking and have sharing those experiences with fellow residents that actually understand what what some of these things are is actually really helpful and what i can do to be helpful is be there for the kids and be there for alice when when she needs it um but it's i i don't need to take it personally if she doesn't want to share everything because when you're home you just want you just want to be home and i i completely get that um so that was that's been a really big learning curve being a partner of a resident i think is just sort of learning where my place is in that um but it's yeah i think a lot of it covers what we talked about as well and just just in terms of like neither of us have very normal jobs so um trying trying to be a parent i want to be while not always being around or trying to be the the two parent team that we want to be while there's only one of us around is not as hard and actually that's okay and i i think we still go through phases don't we of like feeling guilty that we're not there when as much as we want to be for the kids um but actually that's okay and you kind of have to sort of like i've had to kind of like step over that line of you know that's okay because they have a family and an au pair and a support system that they really really adore and love and they are wonderful kids who still love us and we love them and uh yeah and i i guess i'm kind of in that weird position where i also do suffer a lot from parent guilt so i feel like that's that's one thing i can relate to with the resident schedule because my schedule can be quite equally as mad i think one thing that's very interesting for both of us as parents is because we both have times where we're away so i usually when i work nights especially when i'm when we work nights on labor and delivery we work a 14-hour shift um which means support yeah um or 15 something like that which means that there is only 
there isn't that much time before your next shift. And I live with a reverse commute usually. I live closer to the city and I'm commuting to where my residency and my hospital is, which is further away from Boston. So usually there's very little traffic, but when you're working nights, it becomes that you're driving with the traffic. So the commute's much longer and the time off between shifts is much shorter. So often on those, when I'm working those stretches of nights, I stay in the hospital for the full week and I just don't Mm. come home. Um, Which means that for those two week stretches, Alex is essentially a single parent. And similarly, when Alex goes away on tour for anywhere from like two to six weeks at a time, I'm a single parent. And I think both of us having that experience of being a single parent, first of all, gives us so much respect for single parents because that is hard. But also it it makes us have these weird, these weird experiences where you're like, well, I don't, I don't need any help. I can do everything. And like, I should just like do everything all by myself. And then you almost, um, you almost begrudge them coming back into their role when they come home for both of us. But then also when they're not there, you're so mad that they're not there. And you're like, (laughs) I just need help. And like, why are you away? Um, and so it kind of means that we're both completely capable of caring for our children all by ourselves and we're also both really much happier when we're caring for our kids together but it can be sometimes hard to come and go from each of those roles transitions are tough yeah and the kids like is the kids are fine the kids are fine (laughs) throughout all of this the kids are fine yeah and the kids, the, trans, the transitions all been away like, oh, that's fine. Where's where's mama? Where's papa? Oh, they're dead. Okay. They're at work. And off they go playing somewhere else. But yeah, um, yeah it's, it's we definitely overthink it and stress about it more than we yeah. really need to. <laughs> yeah. Although there was a few times, the first time that I had, I was working nights since the pandemic started because we do a little bit less inpatient during our last two years of residency. It's a four-year residency program. And the first two years are pretty heavy inpatient, especially um, uh, mine. I Because I had maternity leave during my intern year, I had a bunch of inpatient blocks from there that were then moved to my second year. So I had a lot of inpatient both my first two years. And then much less my second year, I mean, my third and fourth years, um, Plus the first surge of COVID, I was doing telehealth for the first three months because we were unsure about how it was going to affect Alex, who's immunocompromised. My dad was is over 65, um, so we just had a lot of at-risk family members in the house, and we wanted to protect them. Um, and my residency program was super supportive of that. They were lovely. Um, but having been home at least sometime every day for a while and then going back to working nights our youngest I was facetiming them and he was so upset he was saying mama come downstairs because he was used to if I was working and it was like bedtime or something I was working from home I was doing telehealth I was like in the house and he was like why aren't you coming to like tuck me in and say good night before you go back to work and it was so hard to explain to him that like actually I'm not even in the house I'm at the hospital and I can't possibly just like come downstairs and say good night um and so that was that was the only time I think that they kind of didn't didn't understand the 
transition as much just mm-hmm. because I think it had been so long. Yeah. But they're doing fine again now. Yeah. yeah. And what generally is your kids understanding of what you do? <laughs> um, it's a great question. Cause I'm not sure. I think, I think they have an idea that like, Anytime somebody has a problem, they go to a doctor and a doctor fixes it. So I must just like wave a magic wand all day and like <laughs> fix everybody's problems. Um, I think that's about it. Yeah, they don't they don't see doctors as a as a bad scary thing, which I think yeah, some because they just do. go for their well child mm-hmm. checks. Yes, yeah. um, and they know that, you know they know they know they, they get shots and those needles and they don't enjoy it, but they also know that it actually helps them in the future and they also get candy afterwards. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, um, I like to say that their their, doc- their doctors don't, uh, but their this their lo- do- lovely doctor Mama uh, <laughs> does, and Papa gives the candy. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, we we but, often get them treats after doctor's yeah. appointments. But um, they don't, I think just because they're growing up in a household where doctors are not a bad thing, partly because Alice is a doctor and partly because I often am seeing a doctor and like ever since they can remember, I've had that positive relationship with doctors that has never been a bad thing in this house. And and they actually get excited when they see an ambulance because they're excited that someone's going to like get help or... <laughs> I have mixed feelings. They they get really excited to see ambulances. I'm like, that's not a good sign. But, <laughs> but they see they do see in that way of like yeah. this this person is going to get help. Like that's that's their view on it, which I think is yeah, really lovely. True. It is good. Yeah, yeah, that is. Um, they they haven't spent a lot of time in hospitals it, themselves, but um, other than when they were young, I can't remember. Um, but. Yeah, they they overall have a really positive view, and they really enjoy playing doctor. They um, do. Yeah, they um especially when there was a lot of we were talking a lot about the COVID vaccine when it was first coming out, and I got my first shots in in December, and we have this little like doctor kit that they like to play with that has a couple of these like fake little um syringes and so our youngest actually both of them really were like going around the house and being like you get a vaccine you get a vaccine and like jabbing everybody over and over with the syringes well not just that but the piano yeah the, the, the kitchen chair table. the chair yeah. gets vaccine the piano gets vaccine <laughs> that's great that was really good yeah so i would love to hear about what inspired you two to start this podcast oh well there's there's two parts to it i think um the uh the, the bit that initially started the conversation was just a random car ride um coming back from i can't remember where we're coming from but we're just in the car with the family and we're sort of just pondering about things and the, you know the pandemic and what what what's happening and what a lot of friends are doing and then we're talking about podcasts we listen to and like how actually exciting during the pandemic a lot of podcasts have been producing more content and it's been really wonderful um and then i sort of just sort of joke that oh yeah, well, you should make a podcast and actually i think originally my brain was because we were talking a lot about your food insecurity research um and sort of ways to sort of like present present that in a way that you know, both me, both me and Alice are uh, pretty dyslexic, um, as well as like various other reasons why academia doesn't really suit us in the same way. Like we're very definitely visual, hands-on learners, and the idea of presenting the research through a podcast seemed a lot more appealing. Um, but then, 
yeah so then we kind of joked and then okay we're gonna we'll do something and then that's kind of where you sort of fell in to this story yeah i think alex was like oh you should do a podcast and i like flippantly go like that's crazy i could never do a podcast um and you said well you could if you were talking about like parenting and medicine or something along those lines um I don't remember when along when during the conversation that line came up, but I was like, oh, well, I suppose I could. Like, what is the one thing that I could talk about that I would just happily talk about for hours at a time? <laughs> I was like, yeah, that, that is it. That is that one thing. Um, well, and this stems from conferences you've done like yeah. the last few years as well, right? Yeah. So I had been – so the the backstory to where wanting to talk about parenting and medicine came was actually – there's my my residency director who I love um the program director she runs a panel discussion every year at one of our um family medicine conferences talking about the juggling act how every mom in medicine has all of these different roles in their lives all these things that they need to do and you don't balance them all you juggle them because it's just too much and it's all crazy and then somehow it all works um or it doesn't and i had she had asked me to be on the panel which i was like super honored because i'd like gone and seen it when i was a medical student i was so in awe of everybody and then i was a, a second year resident or something and i got to talk on the panel and that was really exciting and the act of actually going to and talking on the panel and hearing everybody else's story and the discussions we had with it was really inspiring to like I think especially after I'd had my second child and I'd had kind of some of those more complex experiences and feelings and having them validated by other women in my profession and feeling like it's okay to have these complex feelings and it's okay to not always feel like I am the best mom and also sometimes feel like I'm not always the best resident and like these things are sometimes at war with each other in my life. Um, And that was, that was a really moving experience. And so I was wanting to continue those conversations and I was having those conversations with my co-residents. I had a wonderful resident who is two years ahead of me in the program and we would talk a lot. And um, also a lot of our attendings who are parents. And then I, really just enjoyed those conversations and I wanted to continue that and share all of the amazing stories I was hearing. And yeah, the, the, it kind of goes to those sort of like the idea of support groups. Like when you, when you talk to people and listen to people in the same situation as you, that really helps because even if, even if you're not like even actively partaking in the conversation, just hearing people talking about things and validating things that you're going through and knowing that you're not alone in this situation is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And also, like, that we've, we've talked about this a lot with you as well, and Rebecca, about how the how the medical training system is just not set up for, for women, let alone uh, parenting um, and any, any kind of family life. And... Uh, one of the one of the few ways you can bring change is by actually bringing these conversations out and people realizing because 
you know what was what was happening like Alice said you'd be talking to other people in your residency who are going through the same thing but that conversation wasn't happening on a wider on a wider stage so like people who are not in that community were not really understanding quite the journey these uh these mother doctor mothers were going through and been able to put it out in the kind of in a public forum podcast way where people can either listen to the whole thing or just dip into certain conversations if it's someone they know and it's really encouraging these conversations to take place on a more public forum and by doing that you can bring out bring about change in a much more positive way i think Ta-da. I agree. Those are all really excellent reasons yeah. to do this podcast. <laughs> Plus, we also it's been really fun to have a project to do together because the world yeah. of music and uh, medicine don't often cross unless you're a fully trained music therapist, which is somewhere on the cards, I think, for me in the future, but not right now. Not but <laughs> So it's been really nice to, like, actually do stuff together and like sit in a space together for like a couple of hours. And it's not to do with children. It's not to do about each other's work per se, but it's just, it's just a fun project to be together with. Yeah. It's nice. You have a joint hobby. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, is there anything else that you guys wanted to talk about with our time? I feel like we've, we've covered so much of our story. Yeah. I, I, I think, one thing I would definitely advise, like this is for partners and for doctors themselves, that taking good care of your mental health is incredibly important because I feel like residency full stop is intense on the couple, like without without even factoring in parenthood. Um, and both Alice and I see therapists and it is... I think really a really vital thing to be doing um, just to be able to keep on top of your mental health and have someone to go to that is completely separate from everything else that's going on, who can help you, who's trained to help you. Because if you, because both, both Alice and I have had really big situations where we've like had burnout and we've, you know, we've really had to like take a step back and that's not helpful. And just trying to keep on top of it by having therapy, talking to your doctors and really keeping on top of your own mental health, then impacts your family and your work in a much more positive way because you're much more functional. But I'd say like that is probably one of the biggest takeaways I've had from this from this whole experience is if you can look after yourself, then you're going to be a happier person to be able to help look after your partner and your family and all of that. I think that's a great piece of advice. Alice, do you have one piece of advice for us? Yeah, Alex, I was going to say you skipped ahead. You went to the wrap-up questions, which is Oh, I fair, guess that is a wrap-up question, yeah. You know what they are. But that's okay. <laughs> I, I didn't realize I was doing that, but you're all right. I just did that, yeah. yeah. But that was one thing, like, that is the overarching theme, though, isn't it? Like, all the things we've talked about today, we've had people to talk to to help deal with those situations yeah and I think that's really important yeah um yeah I feel like I mean for me the the biggest thing that I've learned is it's it's okay to have a plan but you need to be okay to, with letting it go as well and um learn to be comfortable with the unknown is is the way that I have approached raising a family and and becoming a doctor and 
having children at the same time. And I think it's, it's the only way that, that you can make it all happen is by being okay with not knowing what's actually going to happen tomorrow, but like, it's probably going to end up all right. But I also want to turn that around on you because I know you gave us advice on your episode, which is so exciting, but I wanted to see if there was anything. Now we've been talking more. Are there other things that came up? Because we're, we're doing this like fun flipped episode, but we're also (laughs) talking beforehand. It would be so fun to just have this as a, as a conversation. What are, what is, um, anything else that's come up for you? I think one thing, and it sort of fits with some of the themes you guys have been talking about, which is that it takes deliberate effort to not let medicine run everything in your life. Mm. Um, And my advice is to practice doing that sometimes, (laughs) Um, because I think any job, even being a physician, is not going to give you everything that you want. And it's not always going to give back everything that you put into it. So it's important to prioritize some other things that, you know, really matter to you that you can find joy in. I really like the way that you phrased that also, because it's like medicine is so easy to just let it take over absolutely every aspect of your day and your time. And being really deliberate about that is so powerful, but it's also so hard because you feel guilty when you're not. Well, it's because because the system is built to To encompass your entire life. Like, But it's okay to have it not. Yeah. Right. And it it is okay, but you have to choose that. Yeah. Go on then. What's your, what, over the, since we last spoke to you a few months ago, uh, what sort of, what have you been doing to sort of like enjoy non- non-doctoring and non-family what's been your your thing that you've been enjoying Ooh, um well I think so I've actually been now that the restrictions have been lifted a little bit I've been seeing people in person more which is which has been great and I've also in that vein been even if people aren't here in the same place that I live been making more of an effort to talk to people on the phone and have phone dates with friends and so that has been that's been great that's awesome. It's a big difference, isn't it? It just seeing someone in the flesh, even if you're socially distanced and masked and but just sharing a space with a friend, it's magical. Uh, it kind of <laughs> having it taken away from you, you kind of made you take it from grant, take it for granted how yeah. important human interaction is, right? Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Not to say that when I when I first started doing that, I was incredibly socially awkward and didn't really know how to deal with people. But yeah. <laughs> but now it will feel you will be a little more motivated to make it happen. Yeah, yeah exactly, right. yeah. exactly. All right, and what is one thing for each of your pieces of advice that you can do one day? Sorry, what's one thing you can do each day to make yourself one percent stronger? So I always go back to something that I heard on um, my other favorite type of podcast. So I have two types of podcasts that I listen to. I listen to medical podcasts and I listen to gymnastics podcasts. Um, Ooh, maybe we need one of those crossovers sometime. Gymnastics medicine, like <laughs> yeah. a sports medicine. That would be yeah. really fun. Um, but one of the gymnastics podcasts I ha- I listened to, somebody talked about turning all of your I have to's into I get to. And so that's something that I try to do in my mind when I, um, 
when I get to work, when I, when I get to do, um, all of these things, I, instead of, I have to get to work at 7am so I can do all these things. I get to go and practice medicine today. I get to do a, a meaningful job with a meaningful career today. I have to rush home so that I can make dinner so that I can get the kids to bed on time. I can turn into, I get to go home to see my amazing family, to put food on the table because we're lucky enough to have food to put on the table, to put them in their beds because we're so lucky that they each have beds with a safe roof over their head and to try to turn all of those have to's into get to, to switch that perspective to like really acknowledge all of the incredible things that I am so fortunate to have in my life. That's, That's great advice. Yeah. Um, I guess mine is very similar to what comes up on this podcast a lot about you time uh, or me time <laughs> or, you know, yourself, self, time for yourself. Um, <laughs> and what there was, uh, I can't remember I can't remember who it is that we're talking to, but someone on the podcast said their partner doesn't do anything in the day until they've either walked out the house or stuck their head mm, out the window and just got that. a grasp of fresh air. Yeah. Um, and that kind of resonates for me, like being outside, no matter how long it is, whether it's for like, I'm lucky enough to have like two hours spare in the day to go for a, a walk through the woods or whether it's just to sit on the porch for five minutes and just be outside and just watch nature and just breathe fresh air and that that time for myself and being there part of nature is that gets me through the day that gets me one percent stronger easily because the natural world just puts everything into perspective i think for me um it's i guess it's a bit of a spiritual thing as well isn't it just like you're just getting that moment to connect with nature the the earth that kind of creates life and is there you know, it's just, it, it, it just creates and it evolves like just seeing like the formation of spring, just things coming, coming back to life again. And that whole circle of life, you can kind of just experience in that moment, whether it's a breath in the morning or, you know, for a two hour walk, it like that just, that just brings me strength every day. That's great. That's also great advice. You guys are filled with great advice. I mean, this is all, all often great advice that we've learned off other people from this yes. podcast. But <laughs> how about you, Rebecca? Um, well, I think that mine is sort of a hybrid of what I said before, which is keeping in touch with people that you love, family and friends, I think is very strengthening. Um, and I have also, we, we live near a park that has a lot of trees and woods. And I have also really enjoyed getting out and being able to walk there. Um, yeah, that's also been, been great for me. There was one thing we were talking about. We're driving back from somewhere yesterday. Um, we were, Alice and I were just noticing the clouds and how pretty they look. And that sort of just remind me how before I had kids, how we used to sort of just lie on the grass and just look at the sky and just watch the clouds go by. And I think I, I think I want to get the kids into doing that because I, I, that will be partly because it will keep them still and quiet for a bit, maybe. <laughs> but also, yeah. like, it is magical just being able to just look up and just observe, isn't it? And yeah. clouds are beautiful. <laughs> clouds are amazing. Yeah. 
Well, on that note, thank you so much for inviting me to do this. I had a great time getting to know you even more. Um, And thank you so much for creating this amazing podcast. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for coming back on our show again and helping us do this funny flipped episode and just sharing your wisdom and your joy as always. Of course, my pleasure. It's so fun. Um, And this is, uh, despite this being the third thing that we've done together broadcast uh as you may have heard from previous episodes uh we recorded a whole episode that i actually didn't record because i forgot to press record so yeah we had a whole conversation that was unfortunately not recorded so (laughs) it's it's been really really great to get to know you during this and really nice that you've been so wonderful to spend more time with us and hopefully as restrictions go further we can travel further we actually be able to meet up sometime and i agree it would be great (laughs) (laughs) that would be amazing (laughs) oh thank you very much thank you you. bye bye Thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining us to do that really fun interview. And now all of you know how I became a Dr. Mama. Um, and what, what you don't know is um, that you listeners is that we, we didn't know Rebecca before doing the podcast, but I had to edit off about 15 minutes at the beginning and 15 minutes at the end because we were just too busy nattering and chattering. So <laughs> it's been really, really great fun to get to know Rebecca and um, we can't wait to our, for our families to finally meet in person someday. Yes. And I feel like for me, that has by far been the most rewarding part of this podcast is getting to do these really in-depth interviews with all of these incredible Dr. Mamas and learning their stories and just getting to chat with them, get to know them better. Some who I knew before starting this journey and some who we met for the first time, like Rebecca. And it's been such a um, an enriching experience. It's been a really magical few months um, talking to some incredible women. And I just want to say, I think we should say thank you to them. So we uh, a big thank you to Elisa Laflamme. And Dr. Leila Zahidi-Sprung. Dr. Sarah Castle. Dr. Pat Moyer. Dr. Liz Boltaro. Doctors, the duo doctors of urology, Dr. Claire Burton and Kelly Farrow. That's totally the, the superhero name now, isn't it? <laughs> the duo doctors. Um, uh, Dr. Nicole Gendron. And Dr. Aaron Bassett. Uh, Dr. Bethany Harvey. Dr. Tanya Campus. Dr. Jasmine Darling. Dr. Elise Carpenter. The one and only Dr. Rebecca Ortiz Worthington. Who is responsible for both episodes that she did and the episode from today. So incredible triple thanks to Rebecca. Also, Dr. Maria Diaz. Dr. Jessica Reeder. Dr. Charlie Rose. Dr. Amy Lee. Dr. Kathy McDermott. Dr. Mia Sorsinelli. Dr. Laura Gould. Dr. Suhani Bora. And Dr. Krista Burney. Thank you all so much for being so incredibly brave and generous by sharing your stories and allowing your experience to help another generation of Dr. Mamas. It really has been truly inspirational. And this whole series has just been incredibly therapeutic for us as well and for those listening and it's we're hearing from people that it's been really helpful for thinking about when to start a family but also really helpful just to know that you're not alone yes i i think the other 
super rewarding part of this project for me has been getting the feedback, mostly from my co-residents, um, of how listening to each of these stories has helped them feel more prepared and less alone as each begins their process or continues their journey as as a doctor mama. And um, I would just like to say thank you for the last 24 weeks to my lovely, my own uh, doctor wife, Alice. <laughs> I am not your doctor mama. Is that what you almost said? Yeah, I nearly said that would be mama. pretty yeah, yeah. awkward. <laughs> <laughs> but it really has been truly wonderful. And it's been a really fun project to do together. As I said in the interview, it's just been really nice to do something together. And I don't know if listeners can hear, but there's some dr- very dramatic thunder happening in the background, which I think is the dramatic music that Alex has purposefully arranged well, for I, this season finale well i feel like isn't that like the thing that happens at the end of any rom-com there's like like a really big thunderstorm and a rainstorm and then the the lovers are outside and they suddenly hug and they fall in love and they kiss in a rain scene that's how it works isn't it is this podcast a rom-com because it's a really <laughs> bad one it's a really bad 24 week long rom-com <laughs> Sorry, folks, you've been not (laughs) listening to what you thought you were listening to. No, but in all seriousness, you've been a wonderful co-host. Thank you for your incredible producing, editing, um, radio general skillsing, and everything else that you have contributed to this project. Now, we, like we said, we're not going anywhere. We'll be back with another series at some point. Um, But... Um, this, these podcasts aren't going anywhere and we do really want to help spread the word of these podcasts to help share the stories and help people not feel alone. And so you can find us, as you know, in all the usual places you can find all the socials, as I like to say, all the socials at Dr. Mama podcast. What else? You can email us Dr. Mama podcast at gmail.com. And I've been going on about all season. Uh, we've never had a voice message, but you can leave a voice message. Um, and if you leave one soon, uh, you might hear a past self on the next series of the podcast, whenever that might be, in like months <laughs> or a year's time. You never know. <laughs> Hopefully not years. Yeah, many, many Depends years. on how long I get trapped on inpatient, which um, might depend on the length of the pandemic. So go, <laughs> that might be our parting message. Go and get vaccinated. Go get vaccinated and we'll see you all very soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Please share the podcast, help spread the word. And uh, yeah, we'll speak to you all very soon. All right. Take care. Bye. The Dr. Mama podcast is presented by Alice Kaufman and produced, mixed and edited by Alex Cumming, who also provided the original music. 